0: Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 as we continue our study in this book. We will be looking at chapter 2 starting at verse 6 through the end of the chapter today. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask for His help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word... We admit that there are many passages like the one that we have before us today that are difficult for us because they're not altogether happy and they're not altogether easy to read. But they are your words. They are as good and as helpful as any part of your word to us, for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us because we are short-sighted and we oftentimes don't see the big picture. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to do so, particularly when it comes to our sin. Lord, we pray that you show it to us, that you snuff it out, that, that you would lead us to repentance, that we would follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the themes in today's text is this idea of the day of the Lord. And it made me think of this common phrase that we use quite often. And it's this idea of, and you've all heard it, you know, when you say, well, he or she, they will have their day. He's going to have his day. Oftentimes when you hear it, it's usually used in conjunction of a court case, like he will have his day in court. And it's usually, it's kind of loaded both ways. Maybe the person is seeking justice and they go to the courtroom and they're going to somehow be be exonerated and right is finally going to be shown through and the person is going to be set free or whatever. Or it's the opposite, where the person is a real criminal, they've done some bad things, and his day in court is where society gets justice or the victim's family gets justice or something along those lines. And though it usually signifies justice this phrase could also signify the the idea of revenge which is a kind of self-indulgent quasi-justice you know the where the hero looks at the villain early in the plot and says uh you're going to have your day one day and then at the end the hero is exalted because he somehow delivers his day to the villain and you know that's kind of more of a movie kind of justice but you get the idea uh it makes for a good story at least And we like these kinds of stories because we like justice. We like it when the scales are finally balanced again. We probably know that picture of justice, right, that you typically see. You know, if a news story shows the court case, well, it shows a lady holding the scales. It's a blind goddess, supposedly, who holds the scales and who judges without partiality. We know that that's only a pipe dream. Because there's no such thing as impartiality with humans. Our version of justice is always somewhat slanted to our own interests. Not so with God. In our text today, there is this kind of thing happening, except it is God. It is the Lord who is having His day. And it is the Lord who is dispensing with justice. His justice is always impartial. It's always fair. The person who deserves the thing usually gets it. It's always according to his word, his standard. And because he is the creator, he gets to decide what that standard is. In the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, we, we had really what kind of, it's kind of a general overview of the book, how the book kind of flows, culminating in this idea that we looked at last week in the beginning of chapter two with the idea that one day in Christ, the city of God will be a place for all the nations to come to. In our passage today, the particulars of that overview begin to be laid out as we're going to see a bit of judgment for the, the nation of Judah. First, we're going to look at the, the sin and their, the particulars of that sin, and then we'll look at the Lord's response. And it's not only against Judah, though Judah bears the brunt of it, but it's also against the whole world. And so, as we look at this, I want to bring out two main ideas from the passage. The many sins of Judah, and then the mighty justice of the Lord. And So with that, let's look at the text together. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 2, starting at verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled. And each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up it shall be brought low. "...against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, and against all the lifted up hills, against every tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, against the, and the haughtiness of man shall be humble, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord of, alone." shall be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from the before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, and enter into caves of the rocks and clefts or clefts of the cliffs, and before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man, in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So just as a review, remember, last week we looked at the prophecy concerning Israel. The idea that one day all the nations of the world would come to the mountain of God. We compared it to the New Testament text that said that this was going to happen. Heaven will be filled with believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. At the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow, even the unbeliever, because Christ is king. Remember, all the nations of the world were to be blessed through Israel. We talked about that, but it took the coming of Jesus Christ to actually make that happen, the one true Israelite. Israel was unable to do it. Christ did it. It's a good reminder for the church because we rely on Christ for our blessings and we rely on Him in order to be a blessing as well. Part of our reliance in Him can be shown in how we live. Verse 5 of chapter 2 calls us to walk in the light of the Lord. Walking in the light of the Lord is walking in such a way as to be in the light. And not in the darkness. Meaning, you're letting no darkness in. In the light, complete and all-encompassing. You're not mixing it with any kind of darkness at all. Veering to the right or to the left at all means that you veer into darkness. And you let the darkness mix in. Which is not a good thing. And that's exactly what we see in this passage today. Which brings me to the first point, the many sins of Judah. Verse 6 starts with... For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. These words stand in stark contrast to the former passage, very abrupt, um, very abrupt. They are abrupt words without context, but in the context, they particularly seem that way, almost as if Isaiah is accusing the Lord rather than just stating fact. Maybe he's doing both. Whatever the case, what he outlines next is the reason for that rejection, he says they are full of things from the east. Then he outlines all the ways that darkness has been allowed to enter into the city of God. This idea of the east kind of carries with it this connotation, and it even does some today of superstition and myth, rather than relying on the things that they know. They're relying on input from other religions and other cultures. You see this more with this idea of the fortune tellers from Philistia allowing, I mean, imagine we went through First Samuel and imagine all the heartache and we, that we dealt with there with concerning the Philistines. And now they're letting fortune tellers from Philistia come in and, and teach their people, worshippers of Dagon, to come and tell them the future rather than hearing from the prophets of the one true God who were doing the same thing. It's pretty incredible. It says they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Basically signifying this whole idea, dealing with enemies, rather than dealing with and trusting in their own God. Verse 7, the land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasure. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Here we have trusting in the age-old gods of money and power. Very familiar to us. The idea of money and power. These are two of the oldest gods that we know, right? They're all throughout the Bible. These gods that just continue to rear their heads. You have this tiny nation of Israel right up against the water. So much blessing. Israel's definitely going to attract every sort of attention from all the other nations. And for Israel, rather than trust the power and the wealth, Of their God, they trust in other things. They trust the power and the wealth of the nations that are around them. In their treasure, which Scripture tells us the moth and the rust destroy, and in chariots, chariots were the modern are the marvel of the modern world at the time. There's still no match for the Lord of Hosts. He could just strike all the chariots down in an instant. Just see the Red Sea narrative, verse eight. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So just just imagine this, this idea that they're making a thing and then they're bowing down to it. They make gods. They exercise authority over a thing that they make and then they bow to it. Give it more authority than it could possibly ever have rather than bowing to their own unmade maker. They bow to something they've made. Someone would create something with their hands and then bow to it and worship it. So odd to first have the audacity to think that the materials and the skill that they had originated somehow with them, then bow to it as if they had the authority to give that block of wood or stone or whatever it was any kind of power. And then give it power over you. It's just incredible. It's a story copied right from the Garden of Eden, is it not? We do the same thing when we take something like our family or our success or whatever it is that we think that we have made and we bow down to it. We, I think it's particularly easy sometimes in our modern setting to point at this sort of thing and laugh at it. Obviously, we're not creating images out of wood or stone at least hopefully not and and bowing to those things but we're just as much idolaters we are idolaters with the best of them we store those idols in our hearts rather than on our shelves and so we are no less guilty of this verse 9 through 11 so man is humbled for each one is brought low do not forgive them And then you have this continued idea. It says they're going to enter into the rock before the terror of the Lord. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of man shall be humbled. This is a summary of all those sins. All of those sins mean what? Man thought himself to be smarter than God. Judah thought itself to be smarter than its creator. And now they're going to be brought low. The haughty, proud looks of man are brought down. The Lord alone will be exalted. And so what do we do with these as a church? What do we have to do with this whole issue with the pride in, in Judah? Them thinking that they should mix their thoughts, the thoughts of the world, with their own religion in order to create something good. Hopefully we see ourselves in the mirror and repent. That's hopefully what our response to this is. If not, then we should get a new mirror because we are right in the center of this type of sin as well. Christianity in this country in particular is almost unrecognizable from that of the reformers during the Reformation. Vastly different even from the one that the faith that the Puritans brought over from that land as they started and planted churches in this country. Pulpits are almost devoid of the word of God completely filled with men who couldn't think their way out of a paper bag unfortunately and much less the deeper truths of scriptures and the sad thing is churches allow it and they allow worship to be man-centered and the goals of the church should be about money and attendance rather than the worship of god so if you think for a moment that we're not doing these same things we indeed are this isn't just about the church either it's about each of us as individuals you still think that power and money are ways to get ahead in the world the love of money is the root of all evil yet people still love money way too much power rests only with god and is given to others yet we constantly try to grab it for ourselves and you think that these things are helpful in the world just come in, if you think that things like money and power are helpful and something that you can take with you, just go take a walk around the cemetery. Ask those folks where their money is today. Ask them who's in charge. They won't answer. They have nothing to say about it. The right answer here isn't to say, okay, I know I'm mostly okay here. When we read this text and we read about the sins of Judah, we want to kind of say, yeah, yeah, I got that. But instead, we should say, Lord, Break my heart. Heal my sin. Deliver me from my pride. It is the sort of repentance that leads to what we read next. And that is in verse 12. For the day, or for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. The Lord has a day. The Lord's day in court, we mentioned earlier, is coming. And it's not because he deserves justice. It's because he's going to bring it. He is the prosecutor. He is the judge. He is the bailiff. He is the warden. He holds the keys to the kingdom. And he holds the keys to the dark abyss. He is all of those things. And notice, as you go through this passage, what is safe Nothing. Starting at verse thirteen, even the cedars of Lebanon, which are kind of this symbol of of power and majesty and beauty, even something that the people of that day really loved and adored, and they're still beautiful today. You can look up pictures of them. I actually, spent quite a bit of time reading about them. Beautiful trees. The Lord lays low even His creation. Lofty mountains, uh, uplifted hills against every high tower, against every fortified wall, nothing is safe. Against those things that people use to hoist themselves up and attempt to make themselves better, the Lord immediately wrecks them all. Even His creation, all of these things, the hills, these things that are considered to be Immovable objects. When you think of a hill, you don't think of it being laid low or the low places being brought up. We don't think of that, but the Lord, of course, looks at those trees as if they're toothpicks. They don't mean they're nothing to him in that regard. And then it goes on. Verse 16 against all the ships of Tarshish. And you may be thinking, what are these ships? Considered very beautiful in the ancient world usually carried with them very beautiful things as you read about Solomon and these ships would come in and they would bring gold and silver and and peacocks, I think. I guess peacocks were considered a a cool thing back then. They, They brought these beautiful things from the world. All of them. The beauty of His creation. All of it. He's against the pride of man. The beauty of man stands in the way of the glory of God when it is held up against God. And again... We get this idea of pride and haughtiness, the idols of the people, the creation of their hand, that they have set in place of authority. Only the Creator should sit in that place of authority. And So that brings me to think about a passage from Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13. And this is a passage that we've read before, but it deserves being read in this context as well. I think this is one of the most vivid pictures in Scripture of this idea of fleeting wealth and even fleeting human accomplishments and pride. Starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, this is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods, laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is who so is the one who lays up for himself treasure up for himself that is not rich towards God. What gain did that man have in the morning? of his death notice what Jesus says he says and and these things that you have prepared whose will they be take Tarshish for instance where is all the wealth of that nation well they might find it when they actually find out where Tarshish was to begin with it was a nation that was once wealthy and rich and now they don't even know where it was if you think wealth matters just see that nation the cedars of Lebanon. These cedars can live up to a thousand years. That's a long time. And they can easily be brought down by their creator with a, with nothing. What makes us think. Our lives are called a vapor in the scriptures. That we could possibly do better. Look at verse 22 there back in Isaiah. It's that same idea. Stop regarding man. In whose nostrils is breath for what account is he? Verse nineteen through twenty-one The people shall enter the caves of the rocks and holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Where are they going? They're they're hiding in the caves. They're they're running into the caves to, to, in order to get away from the Lord. They're fleeing in terror, trying to hide themselves from God. Again, this should remind us of the picture of the garden when Adam and Eve realized their sin and shame and they attempted to hide from the Lord as if, as if they could. The same thing is taking place here, which reminds me of another place in scripture. Turn, turn with me to Revelation chapter six. Revelation chapter 6 starting at verse 12 Some of the imagery in this book is difficult, but this imagery is not at all difficult here. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and full of and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig tree shed as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. When shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who shall stand? The people of the earth, those who thought themselves high, were now calling on the mountains to fall on them. Pretty incredible. People who had just previously thought they can control God some way by making Him into their own image now think that they can control the mountains as well. Their pride doesn't stop Yet, those mountains will stand as idle observers as the Lord comes. No one is able to hide from the wrath of God. And notice whose wrath that it's being poured out here back in Revelation. From the wrath of the Lamb. What an interesting picture, right? A lamb, a tiny, innocent creature, yet it causes all the prideful earth to cower in fear. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth is the one who rides on the white horse. There in verse 2 of Revelation 6, he is coming to conquer, not to die. He died once for his people, and on the day of the Lord he will come to prosecute and to judge. And there will be no deliverance on that day. Just like at Passover, only those covered with his blood will be safe with him. The others will face his wrath, and they will beg the mountains to crush them rather than have to face the lamb. Just real quick, when is this taking place? Well, for Judah, they could have had it would have had immediate fulfillment or soon fulfillment in the coming of Babylon, and for some years in the future, again Rome would come and they would see that again. Ultimately, that Rome would would sack Jerusalem and destroy their temple. But it isn't the temple that we have to worry about. It's our own souls that will one day see this kind of judgment. Whether the Lord continues to to tarry and we face him when he's on his throne. Or he comes soon and we see him riding the horse, casting away all the wicked. We'll all one day see him. And for the believer, what is that going to be? It will be like the passage that we read from Revelation 7 last week. It's going to be like a homecoming. He's going to shelter us. He's going to restore us and put a robe of victory on us. He's going to wipe away all the tears from our eyes. And it won't be because of the battles we've won. It won't be because of the work that we've done. It won't be because of the money that we've stored up here on earth or the power that we've somehow gained. It won't be because of the beautiful things that we've made with our hands or the number of years that we've had perfect attendance in Sunday school. None of those things will matter. It will be because he, Jesus Christ, is good will be because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ will be the glory of heaven and we'll be grateful servants, finally. Not that we'll finally be a servants, but we'll finally be grateful. For the unbeliever, there will be no second chance, however. Just like the man in Luke, your soul will be required of you and rather than be your source of comfort eternally, the Lamb will be your source of eternal torment. Rather than face that, call upon the name of the Lord, if that's you this morning, and be saved. He is faithful. He will forgive you of your sins and create in you a new heart. So in conclusion, in Christ we are safe from that day of the Lord. But let us not use that as an excuse to gather for ourselves things that aren't of the Lord at all. We may even show ourselves to be not in Christ let us instead cling to Jesus, our only hope, and let us proclaim the name of Jesus to a lost world. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, as we read this text, it is difficult still. Even after looking at it and and working through it, it is a difficult text. So Lord, we pray that we rest and our assurance be built up in you not in our own thoughts, our own works, anything that we can somehow drum up, but instead we trust you and your promises alone. And so, Lord, we pray also that in those promises, as we trust in them, that we would go out to a dying world, that we would preach Christ and him crucified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.